Do you invest in ETFs? Whether you're thinking, what in the world is an ETF? Or you're looking for the next opportunity to add to your portfolio. GlobalX has you covered. From big tech to bonds and bars of gold, GlobalX offers a wide range of exchange-traded funds. Go beyond ordinary with GlobalX ETFs. Visit globalxetfs.com.au. That's globalxetfs.com.au. Are you thinking about starting your wealth-creating journey but not sure where to put your hard-earned dollars? InvestSmart can help. InvestSmart offers a free quiz that makes it easy to find the right InvestSmart ETF portfolio to help you reach your goals. Just visit investsmart.com.au and hit get started. Answer a few simple questions about your goals and how much you want to invest and you'll get a tailored statement of advice with a portfolio recommendation. You can visit investsmart.com.au for a no obligations free statement of advice. This ad is brought to you by InvestSmart Advice, AFSL 334107. This Australian Investors Podcast episode is brought to you by The Intelligent Investor, Australia's premier investment research membership service. You can get a free trial for 15 days, no credit card details required. To access the insights of some of Australia's best analysts, use the coupon code RASK and secure your Intelligent Investor membership today. We're proud to have The Intelligent Investor as an ongoing supporter of the Australian Investors Podcast. As a result, RASK does not earn a volume-based fee. Simply head to intelligentinvestor.com.au or use the link in your podcast player to access your free trial. This episode of the Australian Investors Podcast is also proudly supported by SelfWealth, Australia's leading independent broker. Over 120,000 investors trust SelfWealth with over $9 billion in equities. With SelfWealth, you can trade ASX, US and Hong Kong listed shares for a flat fee. On a $10,000 investment with Comsec, you'd pay $29.95 in fees. Yet with SelfWealth, it's just $9.50. The thing I like about SelfWealth is the full access to fundamental company data and how easy it is to trade US, Hong Kong, and Aussie shares in one place. You can see your Apple shares and ACDC ETF right beside each other. To join SelfWealth now, use the link in your podcast player or head to selfwealth.com.au and use the coupon code RASK during sign-up. Thanks for tuning in to today's podcast. Please remember that all of the information in this podcast episode is limited to general information only. That means the information is not specific to you, your needs, goals, or objectives. So you should seek the advice of a licensed and trusted financial professional before acting on the information. And before you acquire or apply for a financial product, please read the PDS or product disclosure statement, which should be available on the issuer's website. Lastly, please keep in mind that past performance is not indicative of future performance. This episode of the Australian Investors Podcast features private investor Chris Judd. You may know Chris Judd from his time playing AFL football. Chris is now a full-time private investor, and in this episode, we discuss his transition from professional sports to private investing. We talk about modern monetary theory, economics, how to research a business, portfolio construction, and lots more. I hope you enjoy this episode of the Australian Investors Podcast with Chris Judd. Chris, thanks for taking the time out to join me on the podcast, mate. Thanks, Alan. Thanks for having me on. Looking forward to uh, looking forward to a chat. Yeah, we uh, we just chatted off air. I think um, we're both of us are uniquely placed uh, because we get to talk to really good investors all the time. 
and I thought it'd be a good chance just to hear about you and go through your story and some of the things that are on your mind, um, you know, as a private investor now, I'm coming off a, a pretty extensive AFL career, but I'm not sure how familiar you are with the show. I know it's pretty similar to the format of one of your podcasts, um, but we like to go back and talk about you and kind of the early lessons learned and um, whether finance or investing was part of your childhood, um, some, of the, some of the stories you might have around business, those types of things and entrepreneurship. So maybe if you could just cast your mind back, uh, the early days, young Chris Judd, if there's anything in particular that you can recall about investing or finance that played a part in your journey. Uh, well, my first interaction with finance was, was as a 16-year-old, I got some money from the AIS for, for part of a football squad I was in. It was two and a half thousand bucks, which was huge money for a 16-year-old. Sure. Um, and I had a chat with my, my dad and, and we decided I'd buy some shares with that. Um, both my parents, uh, you know, the, the most brilliant parents you could ever ask for, but neither of them are interested in money at all and, and not overly financially. They're really smart, but, but just not interested in money. Um, but my grandpa loved his shares. So my grandpa bought News Corp at 30 cents, I reckon, oh. and held them. Um, you know, I think he bought them when Rupert was still living in Adelaide and, and, and held them the whole way through. And mm. he used to love lying on the beach in Noosa in his retirement years. And his main job for the day involved checking the paper and checking the News Corp share price. Um, and so anyway, long story short, me and the old man went down and bought a share magazine um, to decide what share to buy. And looking back now, you realise just how, you know, stupid a way that is to, to select um, what stock to buy, but that's what we did. We were tossing up between Woolworths at five bucks and AWA, which was a, they manufactured some electrical equipment, um, right, yeah. radios and TVs. And we ended up going to AWA and it ended up doing well, which, you know, just goes to show you're better off being lucky than, than being smart sometimes. We managed <laughs> to sell that and, and eventually I rolled that into buying my, um, my first car. So that was a oh, very early introduction into investing as a, as a 16-year-old. Do you think that um, had it not been for footy that you would have become uh, an investor going on to study uh, finance or commerce or something like that? Well, not initially, no. So I was good at English at school. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, I suspect initially my, my path in terms of uni would have been somewhere in that, that realms of, of, you know, a, a field where English is, is mm. um, most utilised. So I don't know if it would have been drawn to finance initially. Um, and if I had have gone in, into a field around English, there's a good chance I wouldn't have had a, a heap of money to invest either. So maybe I wouldn't <laughs> have found my way there. But I'm glad I did because um, I, I love investing. I love being able to learn about different things. Um, I love the scorecard of, of whether or not you're right or wrong. But more importantly, you know, particularly in a macro investing framework, you do start to get a, a clearer picture of how the world works. And, mm. um, yeah, I, I just love that part of it as well. Mm. You mentioned the scorecard there. Obviously, a lot of our listeners um, will be familiar with your footy career. One of the things that I'm interested to know is, I guess, how your, I guess, development took place insofar as going from footy and some of the, the skills and, I guess, tricks you may have learned there 
um, from a psychological perspective and then applied to investing and learning. Because you mentioned off air that you're, sounds like you read a lot. You're an avid reader. You like to read. Um, but I think people that followed your footy career will know that you're also a really good leader and um, you applied yourself very professionally to things. And I wonder, did any of that kind of um, attitude towards sports and that type of thing rub off on you later on when you started to think about business and investing? I think the psychology around um, elite sport and investing is actually quite a, a really nice link. I, I don't think there's that many lessons in elite sport that are transferable to the real world. Mm. There's a little bit around group dynamics and, and high performance, but that psychology piece is a big one. Um, you know, I, I think how you respond to mistakes is a, a big part of that. So, you know, NFL football is a game of mistakes. Nobody's ever played the perfect game of football. As soon as you step on there, within a couple of minutes, you've made a mistake. And you find that better players are able to stay present in the game and bounce back and still do what they need to do in the next contest and the one after that. And often you see inexperienced players that are still battling with confidence. Once they make a mistake, you can see them go into review mode and they spend the rest of the game mm. reviewing that mistake and what's happened rather than being present and dealing with what they need to do next. So, um, you know, there's some really obvious crossover with investing. Um, you know, even the best investors are always making mistakes and you might see their record in what they've gone up at the end of the year and assume that it's been near on perfect. But if you scratch the surface, there would have been a heap of times they sold too quick. There were a heap of placements they knocked back that they should have taken, et cetera, et cetera. But they don't spend the rest of the week or month hanging on to that and stewing over it. They're able to move on and remain clear and calm and analyse what they need to do next. Um, mm. So I, th I think that's that's an obvious one. But there are, uh, you know, lots of obvious ones. I mean, I think, you know, in football, you need to know where your edge is. You know, I was a... I was a pretty big midfielder when I first started playing and, and I was really quick. And so I would line up against someone and if they were my size, I knew I was going to be quicker than them. If they were as quick as me, I was usually bigger than them and stronger than them. So I, I, I was able to um, work out really quickly on my opponent where my edge lay and then manipulate the, the game to suit that edge. Mm. Um, and investing is the same, you know, Retail investors will often bemoan that the cards are stacked against them. And in some places they are, you know, some of the capital raisings that retail investors uh, don't always get access to or don't get much access to is justifiably really disappointing for those retail investors. But there are a lot of other areas that retail investors have an edge over institutional investors. And I think, you know, investors need to be clear what their edge is and, and how they can can use the markets to, to favor that edge. Mm. It's a very like, um, I guess being self-aware, it's one of those things where, you know, I've known some um, AFL footballers in my time and a lot of them, what they had is things like perseverance, but they also had that ability to step outside themselves and, and critically assess what they were doing wrong or right and work on that and sharpen that edge, so to speak. Um, I, I now see that in investing, right? Like we see, particularly with retail investors, which you bring up, I see it quite frequently that not enough um, investors know where their edge might lie. Yeah. And maybe they, they think, you know, it's an analytical edge, but, you know, then there's a supercomputer that can do some rudimentary ratios quicker than you can and, and trade faster. So um, I think that's a really important one. How about one thing that's, that's always kind of interested me, Chris, is the transition away from footy um, 
And I guess the decision-making that you had around that um, to, to go on and become a private investor, manage your own money, I, I feel like that's a thing that not many professional sports people would do. They probably wouldn't have the conviction in themselves or even the, the I guess, the information and the accumulated information over time to go and, and back themselves and manage their own money. How did you find that transition away from professional sports to then thinking, oh, you know, I'll take control of my money? Well, it was a gradual progression. So, I mean, I, I you know, I, I mentioned the, the experience as a 16-year-old uh, when I first bought shares, then I got drafted, had access to some savings and started buying shares from the age of 18 regularly and i would describe that next decade as making all the sort of mistakes um people generally make i look at the shares i was buying initially now and i would you know i was buying anz and bhp and i I don't know how anyone outperforms the market buying those sorts of shares Mm. um and then i went to to high risk shares and held on to some crappy things that had run way too long And, and moral of the story is by the time i was 28 i met a guy in perth who was chairman of a a stockbroking firm, um, you know, stockbrokers are a, a, a mixed bunch. There's, there's some good ones and there's some, some shoddy ones. And anyway, he, he's a great broker, um, super smart. And he really taught me how to invest in microcap stocks. Um, so it's really fortuitous to have that relationship, have someone who treated my money like his own, which is very rare in the broking community. Mm. But more so than that, actually taught me how to invest in microcaps and, and, and taught me the nuance. You know, everyone knows the one-line sayings, but there's, you know, let your winners run. Yeah, yeah, it makes sense if you've got Amazon, but um, when you're investing in microcaps in Australia, not many investors have Amazon. Um, so then working out what that really means, how far you do let them run before you actually sell, um, and, and all that sort of nuance. So that was fortuitous. Then I played football. Then I stopped playing football uh, quite abruptly, and I took a job as an analyst in a venture capital fund, right. giant leap in Melbourne. Um, VC investing is really hard. Uh, it's not for me. I, I put a big premium on liquidity. Um, and I think VC investing, you know, particularly in Australian businesses with a, a pretty small market, uh, even if things do scale up, it is very expensive. Um, but that was a good experience. I got to meet some new people. Um, and you spoke about the confidence or, or conviction. I think just actually dealing with professional investors that were sophisticated and getting to meet lots of different people, I think gave me the confidence that I, I could cut my teeth in this world and make a go of it. And, you know, after spending some time as an analyst and VC investments that personally I didn't see a, a heap of value in, I was still analyzing a lot of listed companies that some of which I saw a lot of value in. I just thought it made sense to spend more time on the stuff that where I wanted to put my own money. Mm-hmm. And um, after a, a, about 18 months post footy, maybe it was two years that I took the plunge to, to become a, a full-time private investor, but it was a gradual, gradual progression. And, and looking back, it seems so obvious now that that's what I should have done. Mm-hmm. Um, but it wasn't the path, it wasn't the most logical path. You know, post-football, I thought I was going to be an entrepreneur because the people I admired most in the business world were entrepreneurs. Um, and I just wouldn't have been suited to it, you know. Mm. So it, there were some good learnings there. I, I did a personality test about a couple of years post-footy that mm. was really uh, quite illustrating and, and uh, you know, I had some characteristics 
you know, very low in compassion, um, very, very low in or very high in disagreeability. Um, and some of those traits, they, they link to competitiveness, which was useful for sport and is useful for investing. But disagreeability, yeah, my wife will say that's challenging being married to someone who's in the bottom third percentile for disagreeableness um, or agreeableness. But when you're an investor and someone is trying to sell you an opportunity, the last thing you want to be is highly agreeable because you'll be buying all sorts of crap that you can, you can never sell or profit from. So there's some link, there's some traits in that personality test, which, which maybe make me a pain in the ass in, in different areas, but in terms of investing, um, you know, I, I think I'm, I'm well suited to it. So I'm, I feel really lucky that I, I found my way here but before I sunk a lot of capital into a business and, you know, was, was pot committed to becoming an entrepreneur and, and probably something uh, I wasn't as suited at. Yeah, well, investing is entrepreneurial anyway, right? Because particularly if you're investing in smaller businesses, because you are taking the risk to invest with founders and CEOs and, and sometimes businesses that are not yet established. So you do take that risk and you can kind of scratch that itch, I guess. It's interesting that the two things you bring up uh, in the personality test are probably things that aren't necessarily endearing, but we'll, we'll take them for investing. And I totally agree with you about being agreeable or disagreeable. You know, one of the things that I try and emphasize is, you know, we don't want a bunch of yes men or women in our team. We want people that have independent thought. You know, respectful independent thought is probably the most valuable thing you can have in any team. It's just, it's not suited to every, every team, I guess. You know, when, you, when you're in an investing team, some people take it personally when they shouldn't. And it just becomes a bit messy, but absolutely in investing and when you're doing a stock pitch or, um, you know, you've got a proposal, the thing you want is disagreement and respectful disagreement. Um, I'm interested because in this conversation, particularly because there's a lot you have to add, I find, around like the macro thinking. But normally when I do these types of conversations, I have some sort of slide deck or, you know, a fund manager has some, um, you know, philosophy page on their website, which I can kind of clean an insight into how things work. But with you, because you're a private investor, you know, there's, there's not much to go on. So I thought a really good way to talk about it is just from a high level perspective, how you construct your portfolio. And then when we talk about the different, I guess, sleeves or elements to that, maybe you can explain, um, I guess, how that suits your philosophy. I know that's a pretty waffly question, but basically let's talk about your portfolio, how you construct it, and then maybe we can pick apart different, different pieces of that. Yeah, so I think in terms of portfolio construction, I'm not sure if you've read any of Diego Perilla's stuff. Have you come across him? Not much, no. So he's got the most, I think it's just the most eloquent uh, narrative around portfolio construction, which I like, um, and he, he equates it to being a soccer team and you need to know which positions are being filled by which asset classes. So mm -hmm. he believes a lot of investors will have just a team full of strikers. And mm -hmm. so if you're a micro cap ISX investor, I mean, really it, it sounds far fetched, but generally when you're looking to make a, an investment in a company with a sub 50 million market cap, you're really hoping that goes up five X or 10 X, which mm. we know they're not all going to, but when you write out the check, that's sort of a hope. So essentially if you're, if you're investing in a company hoping for those sorts of returns over two or three years, uh, that's a striker. You know, that's a really attacking position in the portfolio. Then you've got some cash, which cash is, isn't a defender. Cash is your interchange player on the sidelines. It can be brought on mm. to buy another striker or another defender, depending on uh, how you see the game going. 
And then your defenders in the portfolio are, are gold or bonds. Um, now, I don't invest in, in bonds. Um, Why is that? Uh, I just realised, well, I came too late to the party to really understand them. And mm. um, to be honest, up until a couple of years ago, I, I sort of thought people invested in bonds for the yield. I didn't realise people invest in bonds for the capital appreciation until a couple of years ago. And it's a shame because I would have loved bond investing because it is a really good expression of macro view. And, and so often you hear people talk about the stock market not being the economy and, and complaining about that. Well, the bond market generally has been the economy. Um, but the bond market, you could argue, is starting to die as an asset class. Um, you know, we've got yield curve control in Australia and Japan. The Fed in America have said they're not going to embark on yield curve control, but they want inflation consistently higher than 2%, which felt like that was the first part. There's no use talking about yield curve control when there's no inflation. First, they needed to articulate mm -hmm. they want higher inflation. Then should they get that higher inflation, that's when potentially the yield curve control conversation makes more sense for the Fed to have because with the amount of debt in the system, they're not going to be able to pay high interest rates on that debt. Um, so anyway, I missed the bond market. Um, but I think currency is the next, you know, if we don't get a heap of volatility in the bond market going forward because there's no price discovery, I think we'll get large uh, volatility in, in the currency markets. I think that's where the, the volatility will come out. So I've done, been doing a little bit of currency trading. Um, and I'll probably start to explore that a bit more um, down the track. But in terms of portfolio construction, I like the Diego Perilla explanation. I've got about 40% of my location in, in gold and silver stocks. Um, I've got some cash there, ready to buy some other things. Um, mm. I've bought a little bit of crypto, which I see as um, sort, of, sort of an insurance policy against, you know, the edge end of the world um <laughs> and uh and then i've got some some shares in predominantly asx listed smaller cap stocks well why don't we take them one at a time then we talked about um the right expression of a trade and you brought in some um thoughts there around monetary policy yields etc and by the way i don't invest in bonds personally either um i just i think it's a i kind of think the odds are stacked against anyone that considers it uh, maybe in some of the hybrids or mixed stuff, um, like the corporate stuff, you might find some opportunities, but it's pretty hard going elsewhere. But um, why don't we start, my old man who was my soccer coach growing up um, said that you should always build a sports team from the defence forward. So why don't we start at the back and um, let's talk about the, you said stocks, like gold stocks and silver stocks. So if I'm not mistaken, you're talking about like ASX listed companies like miners and that type of thing. Do you hold any physical gold? Not physical, but I've got um, commodity futures in gold and silver as well. Yeah, yeah, right. So how do you go about thinking about the best expression of that trade being, um, I, I'm guessing gold is kind of like the hedge against volatility, capital preservation piece. How do you think about that? Like, is there a particular criteria that you apply to that versus some of the other stuff? Yeah, so uh, I generally have a really high risk to tolerance. Mm. Sorry, high tolerance to risk. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Um, and I don't have an investment committee I've got to explain my decisions to. Um, you know, we were talking about edge before. I think my ability 
to tolerate short-term volatility and not have people take money off me like a, a fund manager would is an edge that I have over institutional investors. Okay. So um, having said that, because I liked the, the idea around gold so much, I didn't want to be stuck in just a couple of micro cap gold producers or developers or explorers and potentially miss, miss the run because I was too concentrated in, in a, a couple of positions. So really, I feel like my gold exposure is almost like a personal ETF. I've got about 15 different gold and silver stocks I'm invested in. Um, mm. I started off with larger, you know, I really started building that around um, March and April. I had some gold exposure before that, but really went significantly into it around then. And I started with bigger companies and worked my way down, if you like. So I started with instalment warrants on some institutional mm. grade ASX companies. Okay. Um, the criteria, I really wanted the deposits to be in good jurisdictions. Um, you know, I thought that if the gold price were to go to 3000 or $5,000, the, the temptation for a, a government in a third world country taking that uh, asset off the mining company becomes quite high. So tier one jurisdictions, um, mm -hmm. good management teams, um, you know, producers is, is where, I, where I start, where, mm. where I started. And I got about four or five of them. And then I gradually worked my way down the risk curve to some uh, developers and, and some explorers. And in terms, if I had to just pick one, my bias is probably um, to gold developers. So particularly if, if you've got a really long-term view of gold, and I think the gold thematic, you know, I don't think it's a 12 to 18 month thing. I think it's sort of a five to 10 year thing, maybe even longer. So to be in a company that's, if, if you're really bullish long-term on the gold price to be invested in a company that's quickly digging that gold out of the ground and selling it probably doesn't make as much sense as, as someone who's knocking it out of the ground. Um, so that, that's my favourite sort of gold mm. stock to invest in at the minute. Uh, developer, tier one jurisdiction, you know they've got the gold in the ground. It's, it's a bit like having the physical gold stored for you, but you don't have to pay the storage fees. Now, I was going to say, that's, that's kind of, there's kind of two angles there, isn't there? There's like, the, I guess with the physical gold, we know that there are some, I guess, shortfalls with that insofar as holding costs and it actually, you know, it doesn't pay your dividend, that type of thing, but a gold miner would. And so I don't hold any physical gold in my portfolio, Chris, and probably the closest I would go is owning a business that digs gold out of the ground. Um, but how do you think about then, just this is kind of an interesting aside, it's just about risk generally. You say you've got a high tolerance for risk, do you perceive volatility to be the risk for you and your wealth or do you think that risk is actually in the business itself and permanent capital loss? Like, I'm interested in just, just some general thoughts around that. Your risk for me is just permanent capital loss. The volatility is uncomfortable like it is for anyone. But for me, volatility is great for me because mm. um, I, I don't have a report I've got to type out at the end of the month and send it to investors and wonder if they're going to take their money from me and, and give it to someone else. So volatility is really challenging for fund managers to deal with, but for a private investor, um, it's mm. a great opportunity. And, you know, provided you've done the work and you know what you've bought, um, you should be able to deal with that, that level of discomfort. And it's really that, that, that discomfort is what you get paid for as a private investor, being able to put up with it. 
Mm, for sure. How about then, um, I guess, when it comes to having the gold exposure, let's say as a private investor, and this is just me playing devil's advocate here with the gold position, is what would you feel comfortable having 100% of your money in equities? Um, and I know like the gold, like let's say, let's say like gold stocks is equities, but it's a gold exposure. Like let's say industrial companies or something like that, like growth focused um, equities and, and companies. Would you be comfortable with that exposure? If, if I had 100% exposure in just stocks, full stop. Yeah, yeah just stocks, full stop. Yes. Yep, yep. I've done that plenty of times before. I've been um, largely fully invested before in, in stocks. Yeah. So yeah. you, so my understanding then with, with, when you say gold exposure, a lot of people use gold exposure and you would, you know, this as well as I do, that a lot of people use physical gold or other types of gold linked assets as purely as a hedge against uncertainty and to minimize volatility in a portfolio. But you see it more as like a wealth creation uh, piece alongside the equity or the other uh, industrials, if you like. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and I know too, that if the market corrects sharply, those gold equities are going to be treated like equities in the short term. And maybe the gold price will too, as, as fund managers look to liquidate whatever they can to cover margin calls and whatever else. And that's what we saw in March. I mean, every, everyone in March knew that the response from the Fed was going to be get the printing presses going. Hmm. And everyone knows that there's an incredibly strong correlation between the size of the Fed's balance sheet and the gold price. Um, but gold price still corrected sharply in that March sell-off and gold equities got treated like equities. Um, so, yeah, look, that, that's something that can happen in the short term. I mean, one of the reasons I love gold so much is for the optionality. So I think gold's going to do well in a deflationary environment uh, and I think gold's going to do well in a, a hyperinflation environment or even if it's not the Weimar Republic, a really high inflation environment. Where gold's going to really struggle is if we get, you know, two to three percent inflation and and high consistent economic growth um you know if, if that occurs then um mm. you know gold's probably going to struggle but in terms of that left tail risk of a depression and depreciating asset prices i think gold does well in the right tail risk of a really high inflationary environment gold does even better so that optionality which you don't get with silver silver's only going to do well with that right tail sort of risk um, but the optionality that gold provides in this current environment when you know, don't need to have an economics degree to, to work out there's a few challenges going on and that, that really nice, positive, consistent growth, um, it's something I can't see happening. Mm. How about then, let's switch gears, let's talk about these strikers. It um, seems like everyone loves to talk about strikers. They always get the highest price in the sporting world. Um, strikers, I love small cap investing, I love micro caps, all that type of stuff as well. How do you think about that sleeve of your portfolio and what are some of the factors that go into allowing a potential opportunity into the portfolio? Yeah, so I, like you touched on earlier, I, I like macroeconomic um, data or you know the vast bulk of stuff I read outside of company specific stuff is, is macroeconomic uh, information and some of the top-down thematics that um, I like we've talked about currency debasement and, and gold already um, aging demographics in the mm. Western world is a really strong thematic that's incredibly easy to predict uh, automation and robotics um, clean air in China and, and clean air in the world, but specifically out of China, 
Um, and then this move to, you know, I think financials, traditional financials have a lot of headwinds and things that are being virtualized or companies responsible responsible for digitizing things or virtualizing them have a lot of tailwinds. So, so that doesn't necessarily mean that I think things that fall into that, all those categories are good investments. It's still very much price dependent. And if ANZ went to a 11 bucks tomorrow, even though it's a financial asset, you know, if it didn't look like it was going to go bankrupt, it, it may be a great trade. But in terms of longer term and, and things that I'm comfortable and excited to hold for a long time, something that plays into those top-down thematics are, are usually the, the buckets that I'm, I'm looking to play in. Um, I, I find like with maybe without, you don't have to be too specific here, but I guess a really good way to illustrate um, a process is to just use an example. So is there anything particular uh, recently that has caught your attention? And I'm, I'm, what I'm particularly interested in is kind of the thought process and information gathering that went in behind that to progress that idea through your process. Yeah, so I'll, I'll try not to talk stock specific. I think the Australian telco space will see a lot of consolidation. You've seen TPG um, bought up lots of other businesses and now merged with Vodafone. Mm. I think that'll happen again. Um, you're competing against the NBN, which has had its challenges. Um, it's a case of telco and managed services businesses playing to the thematic of virtualizing the world. Um, you know, Zoom is now virtualizing aeroplane travel. Yep. Uh, it, it's virtualizing face-to-face meetings, virtualizing office space. Um, and for all these things to happen, you know, companies have to be connected to the internet. They've got to be protected with cybersecurity uh, offerings. Um, they've got to be have, have, have cloud infrastructure either with themselves or public cloud. So, so all these things that now modern businesses need. Um, so I think that's an interesting top-down thematic. So, you know, to be able to find a, a high-functioning management team that plays into that space that could be part of a roll-up or could be acquired eventually um is an interesting play um you know that that's a that's a for instance if you like and those yeah. examples of uh, you know i've got examples of whether it's a a nickel cobalt company that's going to play in the, the, the clean air thematic or you know uranium i i quite like i don't know if it's a, a super long-term hole but i think you get a nice trade out of uranium with the supply demand imbalances that that appear to be occurring. Um, yeah, I mean, that, that's sort of a, a bit of an overview, if you like. Yeah, I guess, so what I'm reading into this is that the, the big, as a top-down investor, which, by the way, we don't get many of on the show, um, at least not in private in the private investor landscape, it's, um, it's more bottom-up approaches who I speak to. Um, so what I'm getting is that a lot of this top-down um, reading and research that you do is information gathering, is more so around assessing the opportunity set. Um, and then you can use that to progress kind of through to the next um, level of your, your filter, if you like, and, and assess each position case by case. Um, how do you think then about, let's go to another part of your portfolio, which is this currency um, angle and, and the trade you're thinking about there. What goes into your thinking then? Is it, is it I know you, you talk a lot about uh, modern monetary theory, um, about... Um, geopolitics, interest rates, central bank action, those types of things. 
Um, maybe we can talk about currencies and, and how, what goes into analysing uh, that position in your portfolio. Yeah, so I try and keep things pretty simple because I'm not that clever. Um, <laughs> so I view gold as a currency, not as a commodity for starters. <laughs> Gold has an 84% correlation with the direction of the Fed's balance sheet, which we've spoken about. It's also got a really strong inverse correlation to real interest rates. So um, when real interest rates are low or negative, that's really good for gold. And, and we also know that, you know, the, the debts that have been incurred around the world, they can really only be, be eradicated by default. You know, so the US government could default on their debts or they can inflate away their debts. And the last time, and Luke Groman speaks a lot about this, the last time the fiscal situation was so dire in the States where they were in so much debt was 1946. And for the next 35 years, uh, real interest rates were negative for most of that period, the vast majority of the next 35 years. So, um, and I also think people can be a little bit lazy. So we, we didn't get inflation post the GFC. Um, everyone knows that. Um, we didn't get inflation in CPI, you know, so, so everyone's assuming that won't happen again. But we did get inflation in, in asset prices. Um, we did get, you know, arguably because so many central banks around the world are printing currency to currency isn't the best way to analyse which currencies are going up and which currencies are going down. But when gold that increased in production at 1.5% a year since 1970 versus US dollar that's gone when money supplies increased by about 10% over the same period. That's a pretty good long-term bet for mine. I don't think money supply is going to reduce uh, rapidly in the next few years. If anything, I think it's going to ramp up even more. You know, the, the, the US has $8.5 trillion worth of treasuries that mature by the end of 2021. Um, yeah, I'm sure some other countries are going to refinance some of that or, or buy the bonds to refinance some of that. But a lot of that's going to be left to the Fed. So those sorts of things I think are really bullish for gold uh, in a long-term sense. Um, and I think, you know, the US dollar sort of has to devalue against the gold price because we see how much damage it does to the world economy if it's too strong. And I think the US throughout this COVID experience has seen how vulnerable they are if manufacturing isn't brought back onshore. You know, have 90% of your antibiotics made in China leaves them really vulnerable at a time when, I mean, globalisation isn't ending, but I think it's going to be reduced and we are going to see more localisation. So um, mm. that globalisation thematic has been great for really rich people in first world countries and it's been great for people in third world countries but for working class people and poor people in first world countries it's it's just been a disaster and mm. um and i think you can see by the civil unrest and the difference between capital and labor being as big as it's ever been in the history of the world um if that doesn't right itself we're, we're going to have you know, you're not going to be buying gold, you're going to be buying pitchforks. So, um, <laughs> yeah, yeah I think that's sort of where the world's at. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's, I know you do a lot of reading around this and one of the things that gets talked about a lot is this idea of MMT. Yeah. And um, this kind of, I think it's like an old way, um, 
It's because it's not necessarily recent. Like the guys that kind of fostered this started thinking about it in the early 2000s, late 90s and on an internet discussion forum. And um, it's now catching, uh, gaining traction because of the situation, particularly the US is in with such a high uh, level of debt. So I thought maybe because you are definitely the expert on this rather than me, I was hoping maybe you can explain the concept of MMT for people that maybe haven't heard of it before and maybe how that plays into your thinking in that, I guess, that thesis that you just gave to us. Well, my, I guess, understanding of MMT, which is by no means expert, is that basically, it's basically what people think, what a lot of people think is already happening for that Mm -hmm. to actually happen. So a lot of people just think, you know, the US government sell bonds, um, the Fed buys those bonds and gives the money to the US government. And it's sort of happening in an indirect way. But I think MMT is a way of formalising that process whereby saying, you know, QE at the minute is meant to be temporary. We had quantitative tightening in 2018, I believe it was. Um, So, and the Fed is an independent body, theoretically. It's not actually joined with the US Treasury. Mm. Um, So MMT is basically saying deficits don't matter. We'll um, print money and buy bonds uh, direct from the US Treasury. They'll then go and spend the money. And if inflation, and, and that only becomes an issue when inflation comes and inflation's higher than we want it to be. But the the tweak point in MMT is to not then adjust interest rates to deal with that inflation. It's to judge taxation. So that's, um, mm. that's basically my understanding of MMT, basically print money, commit to fiscal stimulus. You know, if you're talking about the Democrats, you'll potentially even have something like a universal basic income. Um, you can print as MMT is believe you can print as much money as you want and it doesn't really matter unless you get serious inflation and then the way to reduce inflation is through taxation. So mm. what's really happening now in QE is it's the money gets stuck in QE, if you like. And, it, you know, I, we talked about, we touched on inflation before and, you know, really smart people like a Lacey Hunt, who's just a brilliant economist, believes that if the Fed goes direct and they're all of a sudden allowed to spend and not just loan money, then that will be hyperinflationary, he believes. Right now, the Federal Reserve Act, they're only allowed to loan money, right? Mm. And so MMT is almost changing those rules, Um, yeah, which which would effectively lead to just a a huge increase in in fiscal spending. And I think what we didn't get last time post-GFC is we didn't get that increase in fiscal spending. If you recall, we had the, the Tea Party, Republican Tea Party, tried to squash a lot of the fiscal initiatives that Obama's government tried to implement. So we got a bit of fiscal spending early on. Then we, we almost got fiscal austerity in the US and, and particularly in Europe too. Um, I think that's what will be different this time is that mm. we will have this loose monetary environment and we will have a, a really high fiscal spending environment. And Jerome Powell's already said that he can't create inflation by himself. He needs fiscal assistance and that um, government should be spending more in a fiscal sense. You've seen France just commit to an increase in fiscal spending and saying they're not going to worry about the restrictions that you put in place. Um, you know, we've had 
some fiscal stimulus in Australia in terms of government handouts since since the virus hit. So I think everywhere you're looking around the world, fiscal stimulus is coming or, or seems to be coming. And I think that's what will be different to the way this crisis has been handled versus the um, GFC crisis, which ended up being a, a, a deflationary or largely deflationary outcome. Mm. I've, so I had to brush up on this when we spoke last week. Um, I had to go away and, and read a fair bit and, and watch a few interviews on this, Chris. And some of the things that I took away, and you mentioned during Pal there, is some of the, I guess, the proponents for MMT would question whether monetary policy or interest rates works at all and um, would say that during the GFC or in the lead up to the GFC, as interest rates, rates went higher, that benefited the wealthy people, but the people who don't have money in the bank, for example, actually do not benefit from that and end up paying more on their debts. And so you get that rising, I guess, inequality in a way. Um, so it almost has the opposite effect um they don't know which which one's the gas pedal which one's the brake pedal with monetary policy like do we know for sure what impact it has and then the other one was that you could use this kind of universal income to balance employment and inflation that way and i guess if i could tuck one third one on here is that you only get inflation when you have um i guess repurchase of the same asset so um, a repurchase of the same asset so for example if you buy something if, if the government buys something today it sells it then buys it back at a higher rate. If you're still printing more money on top of that, then you're going to get more inflation in the system. Um, those are just my general, I guess, high level observations when it comes to that. Um, if, you're, if you're sitting back thinking, you know, um, I've got this gold position, would this MMT effectively, are you concerned that that would, if we bring this in, effectively neutralize that position for you and end between the right and the left tail and put it somewhere in the middle where it's not really useful for your portfolio? Yes, I think that's a weird possibility. So you've got, you've got huge deflationary forces at play. You've got ageing demographics in the Western world. You've got mm. technology, which has been a huge force for deflation. Mm. Globalisation has been a huge force for deflation, but I, I don't think that's going to be the case going forward. And that localization process may be net inflationary. Mm. But then you've got... Um, a lot of inflationary forces um, that we've spoken about as well, you know, fiscal stimulus being the big one, currency debasement um, gives you the potential for, for high inflation. Um, so, yeah, like, is there a possibility that those two things could almost cancel each other out? Uh, potentially. But I mean, one of the things, the way I look at it is, you know, if we get deflation central banks are just going to print that much money. Um, and and I, so I agree that just straight QE where interest rates go to zero and the money sits in the bank account is deflationary, but it's still good for the gold price. You're still going to have money supply going up through the roof, the size of the Fed's balance sheet increasing significantly. So I, I think that's still going to be good for, um, for the gold price. Um, the thing about the, the right tail risk is at the start, it will feel really good. At the start, we'll get some inflation. And I think there will be this feeling that maybe we've just, maybe we've just discovered the secret source. We can just print as much money and spend as much fiscally and we can have full employment. And I think because when that starts, it will feel good. 
the authorities would do too much of it. And or if full employment is good, well, why can't everyone get a 10% pay rise? Wouldn't that be better? And, and so it goes on until you do get really high rates of inflation. I think if you look at, um, you know, people's ability to have self-control or deal with any sort of mm. discomfort is just so low uh, throughout the world at the minute. I, I think that that sugar rush when things, if they were to balance each other out, evenly i think the inflation will feel good at the start and that that's what will lead to the problems so it's possible but it's it's not what i think is the most likely outcome mm, it's interesting um you know I, I should circle back to this and say mmt you know with the the debt to gdp ratio which is what so many people focus on um it kind of throws that aside and says well you know we'll always be able to service the interest costs the interest costs necessarily are productive for our society, but we'll always be able to service them because we can print money and make that happen. And this typically, when we think about MMT, it, it only applies to developed countries that can that have their locally denominated debt um, and, and, and have their own currency um, under their control. So there are a few things there that people should be aware of. Um, one of the things that I, that I wanted to talk to you about is, I guess, your, your time horizon when it comes to trades. You mentioned um, earlier that, um, potentially, you know, short term, you, you have an ability to change your opinion on something very short term because you are a private investor after all. But when you look out um, to say things like, like gold positions or, or even company specific positions in your own portfolio, have you, have you thought that maybe um, that should be measured in years, months? I'm just trying to get a general sense on, on how long you look to invest and how long you actually invest. So it's so different for each company. Um and each specific investment. So, um, you know, I might take a, a placement in a company and, and hope to be flipping it out within a week just because mm. it's a small position, it's at a good discount um, and it's well bid for. And then there'll be other companies that I've done a lot of work on. I've met management. I'm comfortable with their long-term plans. And, you know, I would like to hold them for forever, you know, or, or five years or, or 10 years. But, um yeah, it's so specific to each company and each setup. But generally, the more money you're putting in, the longer you want to hold it because it's going to be harder to get out of it. So um, I don't sort of invest in a company all in the first time I invest in it. It'll usually be a process of, you know, you might get to know management, like the business, do some work on it, invest a sum of money, Six months later, the management have hit all the milestones they've been trying to hit. You might invest some more money or they might do a capital raising to buy another business and so it goes on. Um, the general, I guess, theme from my investing is if I'm going to have a winner, I want it to be a really big winner. Um, and sometimes that'll mean that you're investing in a company and it might not do much for a few years, but you might... In that time, you might get more and more comfortable with management. The long-term play appears to be playing out how you expected it to. And then, you know, you might decide that there's a time 18 months down the track or three years to, to double up on that investment or, you know, to put, to put the chips all in, so to speak. Um, so it's not sort of fixed, but, but I'm generally trying to cut losers quickly, as everyone should be. Um, but I'm also much more likely to average up than average down. And, and if I'm going to have a big winner, uh, 
obviously I, I want it to be material. That, that's sort of mm. how I, I view things. Do you, do you write down your thesis or do you have like notes that you take on each company and you put it somewhere um, to kind of keep yourself accountable um, to your, your past self? And, you know, I find it so important to write something down. I've, I've, you mentioned English before as something that you're really good at. I, fe- I feel like since I've been writing down my reasons for buying something, which has been quite a few years now, the leaps in my investing um, and, and in a positive way have been incredible versus what I was doing in the past, there was almost no track record. You don't even need like a, a number or percentage, but just a track record against yourself in a journal or, or something like that. Do you, do, do you write down your positions pre, pre-investment? I'm meticulous in keeping records of what I'm invested in and so I'm really clear on what the performance is. I generally, I don't write down um, the investment thesis, but I, I will know and I'll map out before I invest in, particularly if it's a reasonable size position, mm. milestones that I can potentially see happening in the next two years that could lead to a re-rate if they get achieved. Um, mm. And then I'm really, really disciplined, particularly now, if I'm just, if I can't see why that could get re-rated higher in the next 12 months, well, I'm just a seller. Um, there's always a new opportunity. And if I miss out on that one and it goes on to double or, or even more, we'll, we'll sort of so be it because um, there is always another opportunity and that opportunity cost. Um, mm. And even when you, you go back or when I go back and analyse the companies I've sold, the vast majority of them I'm, I'm happy that I've sold when I have. So mm. I, I think being... I think property investing is all about the buying and the good property investors buy really well. I think share investing is all about the selling. It's really hard to sell well as a, as a share investor, but I think that's where the, the main skill lies. Mm. Yeah, I know I can uh, put my hand up. I'm probably the worst person to take advice from when it comes to selling. It's, it's almost, you know, I almost never uh, get any of it right. So I don't get the timing right. And I often sell companies before, um, before you know they've actually done what I thought they would do in the first place um, but then again I've only sold three positions in the last two or three years so I guess I can limit my limit my uh, control myself and, and my weaknesses there um, as we kind of come to the back of it mate um, I know you've got a podcast that's just killing it um, you do videos it's it's great um, you've got kind of these two channels which I think our audience would be really interested in listening to um, did you just want to give a shout out to them yeah, thanks for that. I've got uh, Chris Judd Invest is the, is the overall channel. I've got the Masters of the Market show, which is a this is your lifestyle show of, of an investor or, or fund manager where they walk through their, their life lessons and the things they've picked up along their journey in the investing world. And then I've got a show called Talk Your Book, um, hmm. which is a different investor's highest conviction investment idea. They come on and talk through a usually a stock-specific idea, why they like it and, and what their potential catalyst could be to, to see it re-rate. Mm, I, think it's, uh, I think the whole thing you put together, mate, is, is really good. And um, I've listened to a few. Uh, uh, for example, Michael Goldberg was on the show recently. He made the connection for us. And um, I, I watched a couple of your interviews with him where he's been on the Talkie Book segment and it was, it was really good. Um, I, I think I listened to all of them that Michael was on and, and that's how I got onto him. So... Um, one thing that I always ask my, my guests before um, I let them leave is uh, just some of the advice that you'd have for, for a younger you. Um, if you could go back and tell yourself, maybe even before you were 16, maybe when you bought that first share, perhaps one thing about investing, um, what would it be? 
Uh, don't assume somebody is smarter than you because they use a lot of acronyms. I like it, mate. Chris, thanks for taking the time out to join me on the show. Beautiful. Thanks, Alan. Really appreciate it. For more than a decade, I've been hunting for the best investors and their methods, strategies, and tools for investing. After years in the industry, countless books, a few degrees, and 1,000 podcasts and live shows, I've rolled this accumulated knowledge into something called Rask Invest. If you've ever heard me talk about a core and a satellite, active and passive, true long-term compounding, or you simply want to know exactly how I would invest... Now is your chance. Rask Invest is our new investment service, designed for all types of investors who want professional management of their core portfolio at a low cost from a team they trust. Rask Invest helps you automate your wealth creation and passive income. Simply click the link that says Invest with Owen in your podcast player to join one of our live platform walkthroughs or book a call with us. You can also view the Rask Invest PDS and TMD and get invested with me.